and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Today we close our summer sermon series in which we have revisited some of the Bible's best stories ever. The story we gather around today is uh, the gospel text that was assigned to us from the Christian lectionary. This is a tool that divides up the Bible into readings for each Sunday. And the gospel lesson assigned to us today is from the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 21 through 28. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' ministry, his healing and his teaching to the crowds, takes place in a hilly region of ancient Palestine called Galilee. But in the 16th chapter, the story pivots. Jesus prepares to leave Galilee and set his face to Jerusalem. Come, let us enter the story. The story says that as Jesus was preparing to go to Jerusalem, he pauses and tells the disciples that when he is there, he will undergo great suffering and be killed by the religious authorities and on the third day be raised. Well, Peter will have none of it. God forbid it, he cries out. This must not happen to you. It is not the way the story is supposed to end. Just moments before, Jesus had asked the disciples who they think he is, and it was Peter who had hit the jackpot. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the child of the living God. And Jesus blessed Peter for this declaration and called him the rock upon which he would build the church. Now, hearing Jesus say that he will suffer and die at the hands of the authorities, Peter is incensed. The role of the Messiah is to liberate and topple oppressive systems. The Messiah is to ascend in power rather than to succumb to it, to establish righteousness and justice rather than be judged. The Messiah is the one to inflict violence rather than suffer it. But Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, Get out of my way, Satan. You know nothing about the ways of God. Peter's understanding of the Messiah is so confronted that he doesn't hear anything past the word suffering and death. He does not hear Jesus say that he will be raised on the third day. And so Peter misses the good news that suffering and death will ultimately not destroy Jesus. After this exchange with Peter, Jesus can see that he has work to do. And so he turns to all the disciples and says to them, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to face that which you most fear. You can't run from your suffering, but you must turn toward it. You will have to pick up the cross of your vulnerability 
And there will be no fighting allowed and no fleeing, no running away allowed. So it will feel like losing. But hold fast to my way, he tells them, and I will be with you and you will break through to abundant life. You will have all you need and it will feel like salvation. And some of it, some of you, some of you will even know this, experience this before you die. This is the story of God for you, the people of God. Hmm. So we've been talking all summer about the best story ever. But is this really the best ending? A good ending is decisive and vindicates the hero. The Disney and Star Wars franchises have trained us well. At least they've trained me well. The good and noble underdog is threatened by some overwhelmingly more powerful enemy or bully, and all seems lost until there is a dramatic moment of reckoning, usually involving lots of explosions or an exciting chase or a harrowing fight. The enemy is forced into submission, and the heroine rises from the ashes in triumph. This is a good ending. It feels so satisfying. Aren't we like Peter? Don't we want the final casting off of all that threatens justice and oppresses human flourishing? We want to finally be done with all that is unworthy, all that is enemy, either within us or around us. If we're honest, we want vindication in the political sphere, And we want the final triumph of our own inner noble impulses as well. I think we get Peter's need for Jesus to pick a side and raise us to victory. Ever since Constantine, the emperor, made Christianity the state religion of Rome, we have been trying to rewrite this ending. 2020, this year, marks the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You may have heard news stories about this earlier in the month. In the summer of 1945, George Zabelka was an Air Force chaplain who was assigned to serve as priest for the airmen who dropped both of the atomic bombs. On August 6th and then again on August 9th, Father Zabelka stood with the crews of those flights and he prayed that God would bless them, bless these missions, and bring about their purposes. Father Zabelka loved his country and he was a devoted Christian and he firmly believed that God was on their side. A few months after the bombing of Nagasaki, he was able to go there, and he walked amongst the rubble, and he remembers his stomach churning as he took in the destruction and the suffering, but his conviction remained firm. 
Father Zabelka was discharged from the Air Force in 1946 and was appointed as a parish priest. And for almost 20 years, he did not question his view that the mass killing of enemy civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was consistent with the teachings of Jesus. Then in the 1960s, Father Zabelka had an opportunity to work alongside of Martin Luther King Jr. And after Martin Luther King had been jailed in Birmingham, Father Zabelka recalls hearing him say these words. He heard him say, blood may flow in the streets of Montgomery before we gain our freedom. But it must be our blood that flows and none of that of the white man we must not harm a single hair on the head of our white brothers. Father Zabelka's heart was pierced when he heard these words, and he began studying Christian peacemaking and the nonviolent way of Jesus, and his life was turned upside down. Father Zabelka came to call it a complete about-face. He began working for nuclear, nuclear non-proliferation and peacemaking. I don't want to lose you here in a debate about whether it was moral or just to drop those bombs. Right now, we don't have the time, and this is not the space for this conversation. What I want this conversation to be about is the question of where Jesus was that day. In 1985, on the 40th anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki, Father Zabelka went back there to apologize for his actions. And here are some of the things he said to them about where Jesus was in this. Now, brothers and sisters, he said in Nagasaki, on the anniversary of this terrible atrocity carried out by Christians, I must be the first to say that I made a terrible mistake in blessing a nuclear weapon. As an Air Force chaplain, I painted a machine gun on the loving hands of the nonviolent Jesus. And then I handed this picture to the world as truth. I sang praise the Lord and passed the ammunition. As chaplain for the 509th composite group, I was the final channel that communicated this fraudulent image of Christ to the crews of the Enola Gay and the boxcar. He closes saying, Jesus authorized none of his followers to substitute violence for love. Not me, not you, not the President of the United States, not the Pope, not a Vatican Council, nor an ecumenical council. Jesus authorized none of his followers to substitute violence for love. All war must be seen as a departure from the ways of God. Ultimately, Jesus is not interested in winners and losers. 
and these are my words now. Jesus is not the one, um, Jesus is not on one side or the other, but he is on both sides. Because in war, all fire is friendly fire. Jesus is interested in saving us from ourselves, and his end game is reconciliation. And reconciliation will take more than willpower or might or cunning or coercion. In fact, these forces are often antithetical to the peace of Christ. A different power altogether is called for. The story tells us that when Jesus entered Jerusalem and faced his accusers and mockers, he did so with a fierce outpouring of love and mercy. And what emerges from the encounter, what is raised from the tomb, is a quality of presence that endures all things and binds all things together as one. Dr. Tagashi Nakai was another Christian who was there on August 9th when the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Dr. Nagai was a nuclear physicist, and he was working at the Nagasaki Medical University a half mile from the epicenter of the blast. In his own words, here is a piece of what he recalled that day. He says, I saw the flash of light in the radium laboratory, and not only my present, but my past and my future were blown away in the blast. My beloved students burned together in a ball of fire right before my eyes. And then I collected my wife, who now had become a bucket full of soft ashes from the burnt-out ruins of our house. For me, the injury to the right side of my body and the acute atomic disease disabled me far sooner than I expected. In the immediate aftermath of the bombing, Dr. Nagai devoted himself to treating the suffering people of Nagasaki. And he began studying the ongoing effects of the bombing, noting that there were concentric circles of death rippling out from the blast over time. Later, he turned his attention to the restoration of the city and working for global peace. Three years after the blast, as people were starting to put up makeshift housing in the area around the epicenter of the bombing, Dr. Nagai built a small hermitage to be nearest to those affected. He called it Nikodo, which means in Japanese, as yourself, in honor of Jesus' words to love your neighbor as yourself. And he lived in this small structure until he died six years after the bombing in 1951. In the final year of his life, Dr. Nagai was very weak, and he stayed mostly in bed. 
And during this time, he wrote a memoir about his experience of the bombing called The Bells of Nagasaki. And as he reflected on the aftermath of the bomb, Dr. Nagai came to believe that our neighbor and our enemy are one in the same. In his memoir, he asks, who has done this to us? And he answered, we have done this. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each one's life the sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. This is the great mystery of our faith, that our suffering may be our portal to mutual belonging. And the endless mercy from which we come is the force that meets us there and awakens us to this belonging. We may think that Martin Luther King Jr. and Father Zabelka and Takashi Nagai are exceptional people and that we are not capable of nor called to such luminous living. In reality, what they have done is something that we are all capable of. Jesus says, some of you, you will even see this in your lifetime this capacity to meet our fears and the forces that threaten us with the courageous and merciful presence of the Christ that is in us. God has invested this capacity in every human being. It is the image of God within us, and it's why God calls us good from the beginning. And it is this possibility, this possibility of courageous, merciful presence in the face of what we most fear that frees us. It frees us from our anxious scramble to the top of the heap. It allows us to stand firm in the face of injustice or suffering without being overcome by malice or despair. And it is this merciful presence that holds us as we suffer the unbearable. We are in, right now, a time of great collective and individual suffering. And none of us are getting through this unscathed. And there are those among us and the larger human family who are suffering greatly. And this story, Jesus in this story says to pick up your cross. Picking up our crosses does not make the pain or fear or grief or tragedy associated with suffering magically go away. But what it promises is that in time, as we come to know and befriend our fearful and suffering selves as Jesus has, we are more and more able to courageously hold that through line of grace that is in all things that we call the Christ and that is always with us.
Joy Kagawa is a Japanese-Canadian author, and during the time that the boxcar flew over Nagasaki and the nuclear weapon dubbed the Fat Man fell through the sky, during this time, she was a child living in a Japanese internment camp in the interior of Canada. Similar to the practice in the United States, she and 22,000 other Japanese Canadians had been labeled enemy aliens and were forcibly relocated and incarcerated during this time. Joy Kagawa is also a Christian, and in her memoir, Go Gently to Nagasaki, she writes about her own suffering and her own fears and her own yearning for freedom. In the very first sentence of her book, she writes, if I could follow the stream down and down to the hidden voice, would I come at last to the freeing word? As I read the response that comes to her, I invite you to listen and hear them, for they were spoken for each of us. In the dark light before dawn, in the deep light before dawn, the hidden voice comes, named and nameless, the goddess of mercy, she, the compassionate one, who heeds the wailing of the world of weeping, comes to us. She dances the transition between moon and morning, robed in the whiteness of clouds. Down, down through the sensate sea, down through the amniotic deep she dances, a rider of the vast turtle of the Eastern myths. We hear her in the breath surrounding this blue-green planet. We hear her singing as sunlight in the new day rising. In the first call of the first creatures, in the orchestrators of waking, we hear her. I am with you, she sings. I am with you through the water, under the water, in the birthing, in the forgetting, in the terror, and at the heart of what you most fear. I am with you through the long, dark night of every absence. I am with you. Therefore, fear not. The end. Thanks be to God.